0: Father, as we have gathered together today to worship you, we are reminded in every aspect of our worship, in singing your praise and confessing our sins and hearing you speak from your word and the giving of our tithes and our offerings, that worship really is about you. And we need moments like this, regular moments that come around again and again, reminding us that our lives were made to revolve around you, that we were made to be centered upon you, and we express that in the giving of our tithes, our gifts, and our offerings, asking that you would take from what you have first given to us and that you would glorify your name, that your kingdom, that you would use these gifts and offerings to extend and advance your kingdom upon this earth in order that the wonderful glories of the gospel would be told to all the nations and as we prepare to sit underneath the teaching of your word now we pray that you would help us by your spirit that you would take your word that you would write it upon our hearts and no matter how we find ourselves this morning anxious full of doubts excited many questions rolling around in our minds however we come before your word. We ask that you would now remind us that we really are all the same. That we are all far more broken than we know. That we are all in desperate need of the wonderful grace of the gospel. So that it can be true of us that while we are far more broken than we know, because of Jesus and His person and His work, we are also at the same time far more loved and far more secure. Far more approved of than we could have ever dreamed possible. So we pray with the eyes of faith that you would help us to see Jesus in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. A man named Kent Hughes, he writes and tells a story about a man he counseled. And this is just a very brief excerpt from that story. He writes... I once counseled a lonely man who was not a Christian. He had no family that cared. He belonged to no church. In describing his loneliness, he said that he had his hair cut once a week just to have someone touch him with no misunderstanding. Uh, craving touch, right? Human contact touch without misunderstanding. Touch without the fear of threat or the fear of rejection, craving and hungering for that kind of contact. In infant orphanages, there's a real danger, you know, posed to the mortality and the development of infant children. One author writes, but how could simply being in an orphanage kill a baby? And the author answers his own question. Basically, he writes, they die from lack of love. When an infant falls below the threshold of physical affection needed to stimulate the production of growth hormone and the the immune system, his body starts shutting down. And in this article, the author goes on to cite research that points to this connection between necessary physiological contact and the overall health and development of children um, emotionally, socially, and mentally. Now, I bring up these... Sad realities to make a very simple point, and it's this. We were built for community. We were built for connection. We were made for relationship instinctively. We hunger for nearness with others. It's completely unavoidable for any of us. I'm reading a a book right now about a famous American track athlete in the 1930s and 40s named Louis Zamperini. And uh, the author of this biography explains that Louis was born with, quote, a, bio, a biomechanical advantage over other runners. He was born with it. Um, I know absolutely nothing about running. I hate running, period. Um, but as this author explains, Louis was, he was born, he was very simply born with hips that would naturally roll as he ran, And so that as one leg reached forward, the author writes, you know, the corresponding hip would naturally swing forward with it. And it created or the result of it was this incredibly efficient seven foot stride that propelled him down the track and allowed him to obliterate all kinds of track records. The author's point in mind this morning is is this. He was made for it. He was built for it. He was made for running. When God made man, do you remember what he said? The first time I read this in the first chapter of Genesis, it caught me off guard. This is what God said. He said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And it caught me because who is God talking to? No one else exists at this point. We don't have time to get all into it, but God has always existed. As the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, throughout eternity, He has always existed in community, in relationship. And you know what that means for you and me because we were made like Him after His own image? It means you, you and I, we come into this world craving touch, starving for affection, longing for connection, needing relationship. You were made for it. You were built for community. It's written into the code of your DNA as a human being. Maybe these are interesting thoughts to you, I don't know. But what in the world does this have to do with Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue our series through Ephesians? See, I want you to see in this passage that Paul is saying we can't be and we won't be who we were created to be until you and I have done the hard work of living in community with one another, of living in unity with one with one another. This is the life you are made for. You can't grow. You cannot mature without it. Maybe I can put it another way. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses you know, or how much theology you know, or how pietistically separated you think you are from the culture around you. You and I, we were built for one another, and there is no growing to be like Jesus without it. Connected in unity within the community of the church. So here Paul, I think, is giving us a prescription or how we move towards unity and therefore maturity in this life. How to become really what we were built to be. And he says that we do it, we do this by living out of our identity, by serving one another, and by truthing in love. First, living out your identity. Here's the deal. If you claim or profess to be a Christian and you are proud and you are arrogant and think you are so much better than those other Christians, whoever those might be, right? Poor little people so beneath you because they don't have the fully developed world and life view that you think you have. Or if you're a Christian and you are harsh with others and you create friction in your relationships and you see yourself proudly and pat yourself on the back that you think you're a blunt, cold but also reckless dealer of the truth. Or if you claim to be a Christian and you are impatient with the failings and the brokenness of the others, why can't you just be more like me? In other words, if you claim to be a Christian, but you are not living, verse 2 in this passage, humble, gentle, patient, and bearing with one another in love, you are doing more. You are doing more than just betraying the unity in the church. You are actually betraying yourself. You are deepening your own fractures. You are tearing and rupturing and splitting your own identity. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, Paul writes in verse 1. He is saying he's saying in this section, live out your identity. Let your practice line up or match with your identity, who you really are. You are rupturing not just a community, but your very self when your identity and your practice Don't match the word, therefore, in verse one is Paul's way of saying the byproduct of everything I just said in chapters one through three is that you would live in real practical unity with one another. Now, obviously, we can't revisit all of what Paul said in chapters one through three this morning, um, but here's the gist of it. You were lost, but found. Right, you are without hope. You are cut off from the visio day. You are cut off from the vision of God. You are made and created to be before the face of God, but you are cut off. But he, God intervened, and He came and He brought you near through Jesus. He brought you all the way in. He reconciled you. He made peace. He ended the hostility. He turned you. He turned you, a stranger, into a son. Don't be so foolish to think that Christians are just people who are trying to be nice and keep a certain moral code. Christians, Paul is saying, are new people. They have been brought from death to life. They have been reconciled. They have been brought into the family of God. What unites us and binds us together, Paul is saying in verses 4 through 6, is that we share in one spirit, one Lord, one God and Father. He is saying Christians have the life of the triune, relational, community-loving God. Coursing through their veins. Let your identity shape your practice. One with God, alive and reconciled. Live in unity, reconciled to one another. Now, I'm not very far into my book that I'm reading on uh, this track athlete, Louis Zamperini, but he grew up as this restless child. He was always in trouble. Growing up, right? He was a thief. He was a bully. He was full of angst, directionless in life. He ran away from home several times. He was in trouble with the police. He was, he was a massive troublemaker, and his parents and his teachers were at a complete loss about what to do with him. And he was about to be expelled from his high school when someone intervened for him and asked that instead, as a last chance to, for him to reform that he'd be forced to participate in a school activity. That activity happened to be becoming a member of the track team. And that was when he made this discovery that he was born to run, that he was made to run. And it's amazing to read about the change in the direction of his life once he discovered and started living in line with his identity. When he recognized what he was built to do, his whole life became focused and channeled in a new direction. You know, illustration breaks down like all illustrations, but you and I, we are going to be fractured. We're going to be a fractured, broken mess. We'll never find freedom. We'll never find maturity until we live out of our identity. Like Louis Zamperini, your job and mine is, is to discover, is to discover what we were made and remade in Jesus to be and to live out of that identity. That's the only real place of freedom, maturity and growth. You see, Paul isn't urging you in this section. He is not urging you and me to create unity in the church or create peace in the church. That's why in verse three, instead of saying create unity, he says, maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It's already a reality by virtue of the life that you have in Jesus. Now work and struggle and strive to live out of the, that identity. That is who you are. That is who you have been brought to life in Jesus to be. Now, second, Paul tells us that we move towards unity and therefore maturity by serving one another with our diverse or differing gifts. Let me state that just a little bit differently. Unity in the church, in the body, it isn't achieved through sameness, but through diversity. I wish that we had time to look at this morning in detail at verses 7 through 10. But here's the main point Paul is trying to get across there. When Jesus finished and accomplished his work of defeating sin and death, he ascended and in his generosity, he poured out gifts to his people. Verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Jesus has uniquely and generously gifted each one of us. And why has Jesus uniquely gifted you and uniquely gifted me with these diverse gifts? He mentioned several unique leadership gifts in verse 11. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, or shepherds and teachers. And in other places, like in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, you can read more broadly about other kinds of gifts that he has poured out to his people at large. But for now, I really do want to just focus for you to just notice the purpose of this gifting. The purpose for these diverse gifts is simply this, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. I don't know what your specific gifts might be. But if you are in Christ, you have them and must be exercising them. See, the point here is not to get into a discussion of what your gifts might be. And that's why I think Paul gives us a sample of listing and not an exhaustive list here. The point is that Jesus has given you and me gifts to serve one another in this body. The community is served in verse 12 and unity is attained as each one of us actively serves the body with our diverse gifts. That's what Paul is saying. Jesus hasn't gifted me like He's gifted you, and that means I need you. Jesus hasn't gifted he, he, he hasn't gifted you like He has gifted me. And that means you need me. We need one another. You can't become who you were meant to be without me exercising my gifts. And I can't become who I was meant to be without you exercising your gifts. You know, if you go home this afternoon, you know flip through the letters that are written to the New Testament churches, right? Not just to the Ephesians, but to the Corinthian church and the church at Philippi and Thessalonica and the Colossian church. And I'll tell you what you will find. You won't find even the slightest hint that Christianity or membership in the church is a spectator sport. Do you know what I mean? This idea that we could somehow appropriately be living the Christian life or participating in the church as spectators on the sidelines, it is completely and entirely foreign. To the world of the Bible unity in the church it isn't achieved through sameness but through the diversity of our gifts in action we can't be who we were meant to be without serving one another the author C.S. Lewis he had um, this clo- very close group of friends that he would regularly get together with and spend time with and in this small community he described uh, how he understood it, that that they all needed one another He wrote this in each of my friends. There is something that only some other friend can fully bring out by myself. I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, one of their friends, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. Far from having more of Ronald having him to myself. Now that Charles is away. I have less of Ronald. See, we are Western individualistic Americans, and we fear commitment like the plague, right? Because we think and fear that it's going to impinge upon our freedom, you know, limit our options in some way. But listen, the point is you won't become more free, more yourself on the sidelines, avoiding active involvement and in service. Service, You actually become less whole, less complete, less yourself, less human. Less than what you were built to do and be on the sidelines. We desperately need one another to call the whole man into activity. If you just give me two more minutes here, I promise I'll be quick with the last point. In verse 14, Paul is saying that you are an immature child. If you try to live as an island, uninvolved, not serving the body with your gifts, children, you're not steady as children, he's saying. You think the world revolves around you as a child, right? You get pulled here and there. You don't make good choices and so on. That's immaturity, according to Paul. And this is why when Paul in this passage, when he talks about the immature, he talks in the plural. Children. Many individuals may perhaps group together, but serving themselves, not actively using their gifts to build up the body. And this is why when Paul talks about the mature in verse 13, he doesn't talk in the plural. He talks in the singular, a whole, undivided person to mature manhood. He talks about there is no growing up. There is no maturity without all the diversity of our gifts being in action to serve one another. So let me pause just for a moment and ask you how you are doing with this. I I, I mean, are you just a spectator on the sidelines or are you actively using your gifts to build one another up, to serve the body and therefore growing up and maturing in your own life? You can't and you will not grow up on the sidelines. And also, do you have the humility to know that you need people in your life who are very, very different from you? Different gifting, different personalities, different tastes, different preferences. You need a diverse group of people to actually bring about the whole person. You see, unity won't be achieved through sameness. It's achieved through diversity. We need one another, as Lewis writes. And as I think Paul is saying, to call the whole man singular into activity. Now, finally, what's the key to doing this? What's the key to practically living out your identity and using your gifts in such a way that promotes peace and unity in the body? I think Paul gives us the key in verse 15 when he writes, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined together by every joint, with which it is equipped when each part is working par- properly, makes the body grow. So that it builds itself up in love. What's the key to making each diverse part work properly? And Paul is saying it's speaking the truth and love to one another. Or really literally in the Greek, it's, he, he takes a noun and turns it into a verb. And he says it's truthing in love. We are able to grow up. We are to le- able to live out our identity and serve one another in a culture of truthing in love. Or where the truth is spoken in love. What are we talking about when we talk about speaking the truth? You know, truth is all about reality, right? It's about honesty and transparency, right? We're talking about speech that doesn't misrepresent or hide reality. Speech that gives full disclosure and opens up and reveals reality. Paul is saying that the key to having a community that practically lives out its identity and uses its gifts to promote unity is a community that deals in reality, not fantasy. It's a community that deals in the truth. Now, Think this out. You cannot know yourself in isolation. Why is the first year of marriage so difficult for so many people? It's because before you got married, you only thought you knew yourself. And all of a sudden, when you start living in real, close, transparent, under-24-hour observation kind of stuff, that's when you start to get to know the real you. You know, at first, you're surprised in that first year of marriage. I can't believe she's ticked off about that, or I you know, I can't believe he's disappointed about this. And at first, you're really, really defensive, right? I mean, it leads to all kinds of arguments and fights and all that fun stuff, um, But then if you're humble enough to recognize it, it slowly starts to dawn on you. What has actually been true your whole life, but now like a magnifying glass is up close and personal, is this unavoidable fact. You can only truly know yourself through the eyes and ears of someone else. You cannot know yourself in isolation. You can only know yourself from the perspective of someone outside of you. That's why the first year of marriage is so difficult, because you thought you were marrying a person, but you were marrying a mirror that reflected back to you all your flaws and all your faults and showed you who you really are. You know what this means? If you think you are going to grow and become mature on the sidelines, you are completely fooling yourselves. It's only an active, up-close personal involvement with others that you can come to know the truth about you, the reality about you, who you really are. But here's the deal, right? As, as soon as we say this, some of you start getting very nervous about this. And the reason you get nervous and the reason I get nervous about this is because we have been around people who tell the truth, right? They tell it like it is. Um, People who wield the truth like a weapon, a weapon of arrogance to berate and crush those around them, right? People who brandish the truth to win arguments and make themselves feel superior over you. People who are harsh and manipulative with the truth as some kind of power play in your life. And so you think to yourself, this is exactly why I opt for the fantasy instead of reality. People like that is why I spin the truth you know and this is why i try to deflect those questions because if i'm really transparent and if they really knew what i'm really like they'd circle like vultures around me truth like that doesn't build up it's deadly and i'm trying to survive in this life so paul says the key to this community isn't just speaking the truth telling it like it is it's not that simple He's talking about speaking the truth in love. You don't just need truth. That's not enough. You need truth in love. Your hunger and mind is for reality, but not just bare reality. Reality that is armed with grace. A community where truth is spoken for the benefit of others to build others up, not to crush them or berate them or make them subservient to you. A community where truth breathes grace, right? Not truth that is used to bolter somebody's shaky ego. So love without the truth is not love at all, is it? I mean, what kind of love would that be? I love you, but I don't really want to know you. Um, That's not very good. So also speaking the truth without love is not speaking the truth at all. But, okay, where does all this leave us, right? I mean, you desperately need the truth. You need reality. You can't know yourself without it. But you are also in a desperate need for love. You can't handle the truth without that. The truth will crush you without it. What you and I desperately need is a place where truth and love, where reality and grace meet and join hands. That place is the cross of Jesus. I mean, you think about it. This is the gospel. When Jesus died, the truth of God was infinitely satisfied. At the cross, his holy displeasure and hatred of sin was revealed. It wasn't swept under the rug. Jesus died to satisfy God's wrath against sin. But at the very same time when he died, the love of God was infinitely satisfied. His passionate commitment to grace was revealed when Jesus hung on the cross in your place. Jesus, he truthed you in love upon the cross. That's what he did. And you and I will never be free in this community, to speak the truth to one another until we have received this truth and love that will never let us down and never abandon us. In the end, I think this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, live out your identity. You have been truth and love at the cross. So truth one another in love. You are brought from death to life, made new and reconciled. So be reconciled to one another. Don't sit on the sidelines. Use your gifts. Serve one another and become who you are meant to be. Undivided. One whole, complete person. Unity within the community. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father and our Almighty God, We thank You for the wonderful truth of the Gospel that reminds us that we ourselves were truthed and loved by You. That Your wrath was satisfied at the cross. That love was satisfied satisfied at the cross to bring us all the way in as we are through the blood of Jesus. Father, we pray that You would give us insight into our own lives, that we would understand how You have uniquely gifted each one of us. And we pray that You would move us and motivate us by Your Spirit and by the wonderful good news of the Gospel, to not just be spectators in this community, but to be actively involved, serving one another in the body, so that we would grow up. So that we would no longer be like children, isolated and uninvolved, not really knowing the truth about us, but that we would become one body and thereby one person, one mature man together. Father, we pray that the gospel would move us to live out of our new identity that we have in Jesus. That we would understand all the implications that it has in practice for our lives. That we would become who we were meant to be when you made us and remade us in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.